Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 132, Botev and Batak. No new patrons because I recorded the last episode like two hours ago, so not a lot's happened in that time. So let's just get right into it. Last time, we covered the heroism and the terrible failure of the April Uprising. A betrayal led to the police attempting to arrest Todor Kableshkov, resulting in the uprising beginning prematurely and haphazardly throughout the country. Despite attempts to give the movement a clear structure, the results were chaotic allowing the Ottomans to effectively wipe out resistance. Now, this was all particularly brutal because the Ottomans had to rely largely on irregular and unpaid troops, leading to terrible violence, as we'll discuss shortly. Many towns had to gather large bribes to be spared. Already, many of Bulgaria's brightest revolutionary heroes lay dead. But as the bloody month of May 1876 drags on, yet more revolutionaries will sadly meet their end. Now, we left off on May 13th in the old-style calendar. The various Chetas throughout Bulgaria have largely been defeated, and the Ottomans are essentially mopping up the final pockets of resistance. Botev has just arrived in Gheorghiu in preparation for taking a Cheta over the Danube to participate. He is not yet aware of what terrible events have transpired in his homeland. It takes three days before Botev and a few of his followers board the Austro-Hungarian steamer Radetsky as passengers. They then pick up more Cheta members along the steamer's route, picking up them throughout the Danube you know, on the various ports. The same day, Tsankol Justubanov, one of the last remaining Cheta leaders, is captured. The next day, Botev receives word that the uprising has failed and he should take the steamer to Serbia, but he refuses. At noon, he informs the captain of the ship that he and his followers are taking it over before they sail it to disembark near Kozodoy on the Bulgarian shores of the Danube. He and his Cheta then head for Vratza, expecting to gain followers along the way, but this does not happen. Botev also telegrams major European newspapers about his purpose and writes a letter to his wife saying goodbye. The next day, Botov's Cheta fights several hundred Ottoman irregulars, leading to about 30 deaths before they retreat towards Vratza. At this point, two entire Ottoman divisions were heading to meet his 200-man band. Meanwhile, shockingly, the leaders of the 3rd Revolutionary District, headed by Stoyl Zaimov, gathered in the church in Vratza to announce the uprising, forming a small Cheta. So, somehow, as the uprising is clearly dying out elsewhere, it's now flaring up in the region around Vratza for the first time, with now two Chetas headed by Botev and Zaimov operating there. However, Ottoman forces are quickly reinforcing the region, and Botev's force is soon, well, essentially forced to abandon its plan to take Vratza and instead head towards the mountains. At around midnight on May the 19th, leading into the 20th, Botev's detachment encounters more irregulars and fighting begins carrying on into the day until his cheta runs out of ammunition, 
and suffers heavy losses. That evening, Boltev is shot and killed. Now, the common version has an Ottoman sniper doing the killing, but modern historical analysis concludes that this is highly unlikely due to a a lot of factors, mostly just how snipers worked, what they were capable of at the time, and that really it's more likely that Boltev was killed by a conspiracy of his own men. His body was left there for the Ottomans to discover, and his head was subsequently cut off and displayed in the town square in Vratza. Vratza itself was only saved from devastation because local notables paid off the Ottomans. To the southeast, Georgi Benkovsky and the surviving members of Hischeta, which had begun the fight in Panagurishte, survived all the way to the 24th of May, escaping into the Balkan mountains before being betrayed by a local shepherd and subsequently ambushed by the Ottomans. Benkovsky was killed and his head sent to Sofia. Over the coming days, one Cheta headed by Tanyu Stoyanov fought its way south of the Danube to Aprilovo before he was killed in hand-to-hand combat. Panyot Volov and Georgi Ikonomov were betrayed, wounded, and drowned trying to swim the swollen Yanta River. Thus Volov, another of the men who announced the uprising on the first day, had met his end. Within weeks, Pachukiro, Todor Kirkov, and Tsanko Dostoyanov were hanged. Kobleshkov took advantage of a distracted guard to grab a pistol and shoot himself in the head. The last of Botev's Chetnitsi were killed or captured by mid-June. Now, I'm planning to go visit the spot where Botev was killed tomorrow, and I'll try to uh, well, post some pictures afterwards. Now, reflecting on this, today, Christo Botev is revered. The town of Botevgrad is named after him along with the highest peak of the Stara Planina Mountains. His fame and reverence as a revolutionary and a fighter for Bulgarian independence is matched really only by that of Vasilevsky himself. Every year on the 2nd of June, the date of his death in the modern calendar, the entire country of Bulgaria stands for a single minute of silence in his honor. Air raid sirens ring to announce this, which frankly freaks out a lot of foreigners who have no idea what's going on. It's an annual thing where foreigners just freak out when suddenly the air raid sirens go on and everyone stands still. Jokes aside, though, it it is kind of funny to see, but it's a very serious thing and it's a very moving thing. I've participated every year I've lived here and it's always an important moment of reflection for everyone. Now, Botev was also a writer, as I've mentioned a number of times, and, well, I'd like to read you probably my favorite bit of his writing, a portion of his poem called Haiduks. He wrote, Come, grandfather, blow on your pipe now, and I will take up the tune with songs of heroes, of Haiduks, songs of voivodes, of chieftains, of Chavdar, the terrible Haiduk, of Chavdar, the captain of old, the son of Petko the fearsome. Let the lads here and the lasses at spinning parties and wassails, the champions up in the mountains, the men as they sit in their taverns. Let them hear what kind of children, heroic Bulgarian mothers, have borne us and bear even now. What kind of young men our country, our beautiful country, has nurtured, and still nurture even today. For, oh, I am weary, grandfather, of hearing nothing but love songs, of singing only of sorrows, the poor people's sorrows, grandfather, or else my own petty worries, my worries and sorry afflictions. Now that's just a portion of the poem, but it gives you an idea of him as a writer. 
And well, it's at the moment of the failure of Botovcheta where events elsewhere really begin to pick up, but I want to cover those in the next episode and finish up this episode by talking about the events of Batak, which I alluded to last time. Now first some context about the Rudopi region. Throughout the 15th to 17th centuries, many ethnic Bulgarians in the Rudopi mountains converted to Islam. There are many theories as to why, ranging from forced conversion by Ottoman authorities to them being angry about their treatment by the Patriarchate. Now, of course, many Bulgarian nationalists like to point to the forced conversion narrative, although there isn't a lot of hard evidence for that, and ultimately we just have guesses as to why they ultimately converted. Of course, others still theorize that you know they simply wanted better status within Ottoman society. It's quite possible that there were some forced conversions, other people annoyed with the patriarchate, and other people wanting better better status. It could have been a mixture of all those things. But regardless of the reason, these conversions led to the existence of Bulgarian Muslims, which are referred to usually as Pomaks. And I'm going to discuss them in more detail at another time, but just to know that these are ethnic Bulgarians who speak Bulgarian but are Muslims. Now, throughout the Rutopi Mountains, you can find Pomak villages and Orthodox Bulgarian villages scattered all over the place, often one following another. So you might be driving through the mountains as I have, and you know you see a village with a mosque, next village with a church, next village with a mosque, and so on. Thus, the town of Batak found itself amidst several Pomak villages, and in the uprising, the town was tasked with preventing them from potentially fighting against the uprising. It was assumed that they would kind of side with the Ottomans. It was also marked as a gathering point for local Chetas. So, when the uprising occurred, around 500 men gathered in Batak, but the Ottoman authorities received word that it was going to be a center of the uprising, leading the local official Ahmed Aga to lead around 5,000 irregulars, mostly Pomaks, to surround Batak. Outnumbered 10 to 1, the rebels in Batak soon negotiated their surrender. Ahmed Aga promised that if the rebels disarmed, they would be allowed to leave. However, after the weapons were confiscated, the irregulars began a ruthless massacre. Although a few men did escape, the town was soon surrounded to prevent anyone else from getting out. The Bashibuzuks went from house to house, killing and burning as they went. Many locals attempted to find safety in the local church or the homes of wealthier citizens. 200 men, women, and children, for example, were hiding in one home, but surrendered when Ahmed Aga promised their lives would be spared. However, instead, they were systematically stripped of their clothing and anything of value before being killed. Elsewhere, hundreds more were killed in hiding in local schools and other key locations. The following eyewitness account from his daughter-in-law describes the mayor of the town, Trendafil, attempting to surrender. Quote, my father-in-law went to meet the Bashibuzuk when the village was surrounded by the men of Ahmed Aga, who said that he wanted all arms laid down. Trendafil went to collect them from the villagers. When he surrendered the arms, they shot him with a gun and the bullet scratched his eye. Then I heard Ahmed Aga command with his own mouth for Trendafil to be impaled and burnt. The words he used were Shishak Aur, which is Turkish for to put on a skewer, as in a shish kebab. After that, they took all the money he had, undressed him, gouged his eyes, pulled out his teeth, and impaled him slowly on a stake, until it came out his mouth. 
Then they roasted him while he was still alive. He lived for a half an hour during this terrible scene. At the time, I was near Ahmed Aga and the other Bulgarian women. We were surrounded by Bishibuzuk, who had us surrounded and forced us to watch what was happening to Tonendafil. Now, one of the women's children, Vladimir, was still a baby and at his mother's breast was impaled on a sword in front of her eyes. Quote, at the time this was happening, Ahmed Aga's son took my child from my back and cut him to pieces there in front of me. The burnt bones of Trendafil stood there for one month, and only then were they buried. End quote. Now, once resistance elsewhere was mopped up, the Ottomans turned to the Svetlana church, where around 200 more citizens were hiding. For three days, the Ottomans attempted to enter the church, but the door was barred. Their rifles couldn't breach the outer walls, and even attempts to enter from the roof failed. Inside, huddled men, women, and children were desperately thirsty, reportedly trying to dig with their own hands for water or drinking the blood of the dead. Finally, after three days, they realized the situation was hopeless and opened the doors. They were given the option of converting to Islam and those who did not were beheaded. Ultimately, around 5,000 people and that approximate estimate, we'll discuss that in a minute, were killed in and around Batak. The village was burned to the ground and, well, bodies were everywhere. The events of Batak are widely seen as perhaps the single most heinous event of the entire five centuries of Ottoman rule in Bulgaria. The single word Batak conjures up profound feelings of sadness and regret in Bulgaria today. But the reason we know so much about Batak and its importance comes from foreign journalists. Now, jumping ahead a bit, in August of 1876, a few months after the massacre, Eugene Schuyler, the American Consul General in Constantinople, and American journalist Janarius McGahan traveled around Bulgaria to investigate reports of the atrocities. McGahan wrote, quote, But let me tell you what we saw at Batak. The number of children killed in these massacres is something enormous. They were often spitted on bayonets, and we have several stories from eyewitnesses who saw the little babes carried out about the streets, both here and there, at Olikoni and at the points of bayonets. The reason is simple. When a Mohammedan has killed a certain number of infidels, he is sure of paradise, no matter what his sins may be. It was a heap of skulls, intermingled with bones of all parts of the human body, skeletons nearly entire and rotting, clothing, human hair, and putrid flesh lying in one foul heap, around which grass was growing luxuriantly. It emitted a sickening odor, like that of a dead horse, and it was here that the dogs had been seeking a hasty repast when our untimely approach interrupted them. The ground is covered here with skeletons, to which are clinging articles of clothing and bits of putrid flesh. The air was heavy with a faint, sickening odor, and it grows stronger as we advance. It is beginning to be horrible. End quote. Now, another quote from his account. Quote, We looked into the church which had been blackened by the burning of the woodwork, but not destroyed, nor even much injured. It was a low building with a low roof, supported by heavy, irregular arches, that, as we looked in, seemed scarcely high enough for a tall man to stand under. What we saw was too frightful for more than a hasty glance. An immense number of bodies had been partially burnt there, and the charred and blackened remains seemed to fill it up halfway to the low arches and make them lower and darker still, 
and were lying in a terrible state of putrefaction too frightful to look upon. I had never imagined anything so horrible. We all turned away sick and faint and staggered out of the fearful pest house, glad to get into the street again. We walked about the place and saw the same thing repeated over and over a hundred times. Skeletons of men with the clothing and flesh still hanging and rotting together, skulls of women with the hair dragging in the dust, bones of children and infants everywhere. Here they show us a house where twenty people were burned alive. There, another where a dozen girls had taken refuge and been slaughtered to the last one, as their bones amply testify. Everywhere, horrors upon horrors. Now, Schuyler wrote for his part, quote, On every side were human bones, skulls, ribs, and even complete skeletons. Heads of girls still adorned with braids of long hair, bones of children, skeletons still encased in clothing. Here was a house, the floor which was white with the ash of the charred bones of thirty persons burned alive there. Here was the spot where the village notable Trendafil was spitted on a pike and then roasted, and where he is now buried. There was a foul hole full of decomposing bodies. Here, a mill dam full of swollen corpses. Here, the schoolhouse where 200 women and children had taken refuge and were burned alive. And here, the church and churchyard, where fully a thousand half-decaying forms are still to be seen. Filling the enclosure in a heap several feet high, arms, feet, and heads protruding from the stones, which had been vainly thrown there to hide them, and poisoning all the air. He went on to write, Since my visit by orders of the Mutasarif and the Karimakan of Tatar Bazarjik was sent to Batak with some lime to aid in the decomposition of the bodies and prevent a pestilence. Ahmed Aga, who commanded the massacre, has been decorated and promoted to the rank of Yuzbashi. End quote. Now, I apologize, that was difficult reading and it's a very sad episode, but well, the details are important, and these are eyewitness accounts. So, Now, McGahan's account was published in the London Daily News, and, well, from what I just read, you can imagine it created a storm of outrage, which I'll cover in more detail in the next episode. Ultimately, figures like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Gladstone, Darwin, Garibaldi, and Victor Hugo all used their public personas to call attention to the horrors of Batak and to shame the Ottoman government for its actions. Now, in the 20th and 21st centuries, there have been some academic debates about the massacre, and I wanted to go into those a little bit. Now, for example, there have been some strongly pro-Turkish academics like Richard Millman who have wrote, written and basically criticized the common narrative about the massacre. Now, I wanted to read his post for itself, the, his 1980 article, but it wasn't available for me, but I did find a PhD thesis which discussed it in a lot of detail. Essentially, he argued that foreigners who reported the Batak massacre held deeply felt prejudices against the Ottomans and were thoroughly imbued with the common Western themes of Turkish barbarism. And you can hear that. I mean, the, the kind of assumption that Muslims can get a pure soul if they kill enough heathens. It's not a true part of Islam from what I know. But, you know, I think it was McGahn argued that. So there's a bit of that in there. But he argues that because of this, their second-hand accounts were mistaken, taken out of context, and generally shouldn't be trusted. He explains that those eyewitnesses did not visit all the areas affected, interviewed only Bulgarians, and ignored accounts of Ottoman officials. 
Importantly, his conclusion isn't that the massacre didn't happen, but that the numbers and the death numbers, basically, uh, for the whole April uprising as well, are strongly exaggerated. But his work has received a torrent of criticism, not just from Bulgarians, but also from foreign academics. In essence, he approaches the question with an ardently pro-Ottoman viewpoint. He was something of a darling of the Turkish government during his life. He sought to discount eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony in essence because of how shocking it was. But it's important to note here that the eyewitnesses who spoke to the American officials who I mentioned were risking their lives to speak to foreigners about what happened. And really, I find his criticism to have something like an accusation, to put out a hypothetical, Imagine someone kind of accusing investigators of the Rwandan genocide of bias because they believed horrific eyewitness accounts from survivors and didn't really want to hear what the perpetrators had to say to justify their actions. But he does make a few good points. One is that we really don't know how many were killed in Batak in the wider April uprising. We only have rough estimates. And most of those, uh, most of the kind of numbers that have been thrown out are probably on the high end. Some Bulgarians claim up to 100,000 or more were killed, but the best scholarship puts the number around 10 to 15,000. But the, the exact numbers aren't really the point. The physical evidence witnessed by the journalists and diplomats and the eyewitness accounts make it clear that terrible crimes against humanity were committed. Now, details can be debated, but that single fact is clear. Now, Recently, there was a huge scandal by some Bulgarian and German academics working on a project entitled, quote, The Image of the Islamic Enemy, the Past and Present of Anti-Islamic Stereotypes in Bulgaria, as Exemplified by the Myth of the Batak Massacre. Now, that title alone provoked an intense furor in Bulgaria. But I want to talk about this because this is one of those cases where, as in many instances, I think the Bulgarian media freak out over an issue where the problem is really language and a lack of understanding. Now, most Bulgarians assume that the use of the word myth was in the one of the common uses, meaning that the academics were claiming the massacre never happened. But they clarified that myth in this case was the more academic sense of, you know, cultural memory, how a wider story was created, which gave the events of the Batak massacre a deeper cultural meaning. So, the myth of the Batak massacre is really the cultural story of the Batak massacre instead of the specific events. Thus, this project was examining how art and other media told the story of the massacre and turned it from a simple historical event into something of far greater importance in the identity and mindset of Bulgarians. So, I thought I'd just sort of address some of those uh, some of those issues. I think they're indicative of issues we're going to see a lot more often as we get into more modern Bulgarian history. Now, in 2011, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church officially canonized all the victims of Batak as saints. And, well, I'll try to dig around and see if I find any photos I took. I, I visited Batak some years ago with my family, but uh, it might be hard to find those. But in any case, there's a lot of uh, moving images in this episode's description for the, the website blog post about it. So you should go check those out. And with that, I will wrap up this episode. Now, without a doubt, these last two episodes have been the saddest and most intense to research and write, but I hope to do justice to those victims by telling these stories. And we all have to remember that all these tragedies did lead to something. And in the next episode, we'll cover the major events triggered in part by the April Uprising and the Batak Massacre, 
which will soon change Bulgaria forever. Next time, we'll cover the finishing moments of the April Uprising and the beginning of a series of wars against the Ottoman Empire. So, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and there's a subreddit linked in the episode description. All of you, take care, stay healthy, and I'll see you in the next one.